Hello again folks, uh, this is Marty Ross, your local storyteller, returning with part two of our tale Falling for the Ushers, which adapts and updates that celebrated author with very strong Ayrshire connections, Mr Edgar Allan Poe, adapts them all the way up to 21st century Glasgow. Now in last week's first episode, we saw how, well, not terribly successful artist Ed hooks up with two old friends from art school, the twins Roderick and Madeline Usher, both of them much, much more successful than he is, off the back of their rather, rather macabre line in conceptual art. Now, for all his life, Ed has suffered from a, well, a, a secret and a, a hopeless passion for Madeline. Now, as the twins fight bitterly over their artistic future, at the opening of their new, but not entirely well-received show, Ed volunteers his help in taking Madeline home. Let's join him as he continues the story for us. So yes, we are... Uh, we managed to get a taxi down on Woodlands Road and it was uh, swiftly carrying us downhill to the River Clyde where the lights of the riverside buildings glinted on the dark roll and chop of the waters. Madeline sat alongside me on the back seat, settled her head on my shoulder and seemed to go to sweep, those same city lights seeming to, to glint and gleam their colours along the pale strands of that blonde hair of hers that was so close to being white. We crossed the Clyde on one of the newer bridges and even as we did so, a whole tide of memories swept about me. So many memories, memories of, of Madeline and all she'd meant to me at however frustrating a distance. One memory lodged itself particularly tight in the forefront of my mind. A memory of a, a long-ago student party in a tenement south of the river in Govan Hill. I recalled a moment, it must have been, well, close to three in the morning, when all this serious party-going had died of exhaustion. When a little grouping of art students, not yet wholly unconscious, sat in the glow from a two-bar electric fire with only one bar working, listening to a cross-legged 19-year-old Roderick Usher orating about Salvador Dali and Marcel Duchamp, which was the visionary genius and which the cynical fraud. Roderick had decided there and then that Duchamp was the genius and Dali the fraud. Uh, which was funny because I'd been at another party with him, well, a couple of weeks before and heard him advocating the complete opposite. But that was Roderick Usher for you. He never said the same thing twice. But he was, of course, always right. And yet my sore head wasn't up for the, uh, the cut and thrust of his intellect. And so I wandered through to the back room of the flat, which, as in many a tenement flat, served as a, a combination of kitchen, dining room and spare bedroom. 
I filled a glass of yellowish water at the tap, glugged it down, <coughs> wandered to the window, drew back the grimy net curtain, watched a late night goods train grinding its way through the deep trench of a track beyond the tenement's backyard. Turning away from the window, I realised I was not alone. Set in a recess at the far end of the room was a small, single bed. In that bed, curled on her side and seemingly asleep, lay Madeline Usher. Plainly as weary of the party as I was, she appeared to have uh, drawn off her outer clothes, dumping them on the floor settling under the sheets in her underwear. I stepped forward, very, very quietly, keen not to wake her. You have to understand already by that stage, I had loved Madeline Usher for some considerable while, but always from afar, across a figuratively vast distance, which always seemed to have the figure of her brother planted off-puttingly smack in the middle of it. But now her brother was in the other room, audibly orating about Duchamp's bride-stripped beer by her bachelor's even, and it was just me, alone with Madeline. I stood for a long moment at the bedside, looking down, marvelling at her beauty. And then, seized by a feeling I could resist no longer, I was turning away, looking this way and that about the, the dining table, the kitchen area. I, I found, yeah, yes, here, a, a pencil for a pencil for, for writing message lists. Uh, but no paper. No, no, except, except yeah, yes, on the wall. A calendar. Charles Rennie Mackintosh, standard Glaswegian issue. January was over and done with. I, I tore off that page and turned it over to its other blank side. It will be good enough. I drew a chair up quietly to the bedside, sat on it, uh, put the paper on my lap, a uh, 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 folded evening times underneath to lean on, and did my best to... to... to capture her. Yes, to capture her image there on the paper as keenly and fully as my, my swiftly sketching hand could manage. An image I could keep for myself, even if the, the woman herself were to remain forever out of reach. But though my pencil moved across the paper with the most determined energy, it still, still, still couldn't fix her image pin it down, the lines, the curves, the, the fullnesses of her beauty, evading every one of those meagre pencil scratches. Eventually, maybe half an hour later, I gave up, crumpling the paper into a ball before, casting it to the floor, drawing back the chair and settling myself at full length upon the floor alongside the bed. 
I must have been very drunk or very depressed, for I seemed to fall asleep instantly. When I woke, head stuck in an invisible vice, the light of a grey and rainy morning was oh, seeping through the window. I raised myself from the floor as, as delicately as I could, looking for for Madeline in the bed. But she was gone. One of the other students stumbled in to make a start and a fry-up breakfast, and I, I picked up from him that Roderick and Madeline had left a good half hour before. Heading back out to the house in Netherlee, where they still lived with their rich parents. I looked around for that crumpled ball of paper, thinking I might uncrumple it and at least keep it as a souvenir. But that too was gone. I suppose one of the other students might have picked it up and, supposing it litter, have, have dumped it in the bin. I even went so far as to to flip the lid in the pedal bin to see if it if it lay in easy reach within. But all I could see was a, uh, a great mound of discarded Chinese takeaway. No sane man would have thought worth delving through in search of such a, such a very inferior work of art. So I contented myself with grabbing a scrap of breakfast and then wandering off back towards my own bedsit through the grey rain of a Glaswegian Sunday morning. And now here I was, all these years later, my lost Madeline huddled close against me, her sleepy head finding shelter at my shoulder, as if it were possible all the losses and lonelinesses of one's past could, however belatedly, be recouped. We were continuing along the south side of the river. It had changed much since our time at art school. Back then there had at least been the, the ruins and remnants of the old shipyard days. But now the whole area had been redeveloped. With fancy apartment blocks, a bowling alley, multiplex and IMAX cinemas, glass block offices for the, the BBC and STV, and the assertion of rational modernity of the Science Museum. But one corner of the quaysides, overlooking an abandoned dry dock, remained largely unchanged. Tangles of rusted barbed wire surrounding an area of cracked cobblestones with nettles and other weeds sprouting through. And at the centre of those weeds and broken cobbles, overlooking the water, stood a building like a, like a great red brick beehive. Of course, I knew from the coverage in the culture sections of the Scottish press that this was the derelict building the ushers had bought with their London millions, converting it into a combined studio and living space. But those culture sections had never shown the inside. I was to see it for the first time that night. Here we are, said Madeline, who had raised her head. Uh, family homestead. Uh, this'll do, driver. Yes, yes, here. The taxi rattled to a stop. Madeline paid the driver and we climbed out and then made our way over the low-strung barbed wire. 
and across the cobbles to the great dark building. There was a little touchpad by the door. Madeline tapped out a code upon it. The door whispered open. We stepped through into utter darkness. But after she had closed the door at our back, Madeline flicked a few switches and fluorescent lights flickered into life above our heads, revealing that the whole vast circular space of the ground floor had been converted into, yes, yes, into a studio plainly, for I could see at various points, amid the flickering shadows cast by those fluorescents, where I took for, well, works in progress. Curling along this curve of the brick wall, was it? Had they actually been able to get hold of a, uh, the yellowed skeleton of a whale? It lay there with purple Christmas tree tinsel and lengths of rusting barbed wire wound in and out, in and out, in and out of its ribs, like seaweeds that the beast had drowned among. And over at the other side of the space, uh, an arrangement of shop window mannequins, male and female and, and all naked, their faces blowtorched to varying degrees, so that in some the face was just a, a black-edged hollow, ringed with dried drippings of molten plastic, while with others a, a glass eye or two bulge, ogling, from the charred mess. And just beyond there, hanging on hooked wires from some rusted overhead pipework in a, in a very precise overlapping pattern, was a display of items of Victorian ladies' underwear, petticoats, uh, chemises and so on. The white linen spotted with what might have been spilled coffee or bloodstains and speckled here and there with green moss and a reddish mould. I couldn't help but remark to Madeline that these, uh, these uh, objects had about them an unsettling, uncanny quality I'd found lacking in the more garishly obvious work on display at the Whited Sepulchre Gallery that evening. Well, you're right, Ed, said Madeline. These, like you say, they're, they're, they're just works in progress. Our way of working, mine and Roderick's, hasn't really changed in the years since she knew us. I come up with the basic ideas, but they're not really ideas at all, just, well, just what you see here. Things, scraps of things, broken things, fractured images, like the images from some half-remembered dream or nightmare or, or maybe maybe it's as if here in the studio I, I say a prayer or two to the dark gods of art and these are the signs and portents they answer me with as hard to make sense of as any other signs and portents from any other gods and like you see well I, I do what I can to, to realise them in three dimensions but then they just well lie here a while unfinished, gathering dust, not really works of art at all, 
any more than a nightmare you might struggle to wake from is a work of art. Oh, but then along comes Roderick. Roderick with his hypersensitivity towards the, the needs of the art market. That insanely keen eye and ear for today's fashion and tomorrow's big sale. And so he comes along and blows the dust off these things, polishes them up, gives them a coat or two of the, the glitziest paint, simplifying them into to big obvious statements and concepts. Jokes and shocks all perfectly tailored to the ever shorter attention span of the arts media and the big money dealers. But as you see, Roderick hasn't really got started on these yet. But it's late, Ed. I'm tired and, well, not really in the mood to talk shop. If you don't mind, I'd like to go to bed. And here she started up a great spiralling staircase of wrought iron, which ascended towards, well, whatever lay on the upper floors. And I... I stood at the foot of the stairs, not... Not really sure what she, um, what she was saying to me. But halfway up the stairs, she paused, looked back down at me. Ed, darling, she said. It's late, I'm tired, I'm lonely. Aren't you going to, you know, come up and keep me company? And even as she said it, she continued on up the iron steps, and I... Well, have I not made it clear how long, how much of my miserable and lonely life I've been waiting for an invite like that from, from her? I practically sprinted up those stairs. By the time I reached the top, I had um, lost sight of her again. But I emerged into another great circular open-plan space, this one all furnished as their living quarters, in a style that might be described typically for the ushers as a Baroque minimalism. It was dominated at one end by a great circular bed, its sheets of a, a silk black as the river water rippling below the windows to either side of it. I could um, see only one bed there and recalled the old nudge-nudge rumours which had spread around we art students back in the old days. Those innuendos about the particular closeness of the ushers, brother and sister. But such thoughts were cast from my mind as I saw Madeline step to the bedside, switching on a lamp and then Stripping that black evening gown over her head, she was naked beneath, but swiftly drew out a white nightgown from under one of the black silk pillows, sliding it about her before, before easing her way under the sheets. She lay on her side, set her head in the pillow, closed her eyes and seemed to go instantly to sleep leaving uh, me standing at the foot of the bed, uh, <laughs> wondering what the hell I was supposed to be doing there. But then, 
without opening her eyes or raising her head. She spoke. Ed, darling, it's late, I'm tired, I'm lonely, I'm cold. So cold. Aren't you going to come to bed? Keep me warm. Well, how could I say no to that? I, I stripped off my own clothes, climbed swiftly into the bed, easing myself alongside the curve of her back as she lay there on her side, touching a, a light hand to her hip. And given all I've told you already about my long, frustrated passion for Madeline Usher, you may be supposing that I took fullest advantage then and there of my <coughs> position. I did not. And I will tell you for why. Because in spite of all Roderick Usher might have said about me, I was and remain an artist. I have an artist's sense of beauty. An artist's sense of the... the fragility of beauty. And let me tell you, I never felt that terrible fragility of beauty more keenly than I did then and there lying alongside her there in that bed. She was so, so cool to my touch, giving the, the slightest of shivers. She was like a figure moulded from the, from the hollowest porcelain. A single touch too forceful and she might shatter utterly. So I dare do no more than, than slide my hand past her hip settling it lightly below her breast and lying there with such warmth as I could offer pressed close against her chill. And that, understand, was beauty enough in itself. In itself it was an infinity of beauty. She seemed from her soft breathing to to slip swiftly into sleep. I remained awake a few marvelling moments longer and then I too drifted off. I can't speak for her dreams but mine were deep and dark as the river waters audibly rippling and plashing against the quayside below the window. It was... Madeline, who awoke first. <laughs> Starting upright alongside me, stirring me uh, 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 more sluggishly back towards consciousness. Uh, uh, Madeline, Madeline, you, you're right. She was staring towards the foot of the bed. There, in the shadows, stood her brother, once again, dear sister, he said, congratulations are in order. C congratulations, she said, drawing the sheet more tightly about herself. Indeed, he replied. Why, you've gone and guaranteed us all tomorrow's headlines in the arts press. And maybe a few headlines elsewhere to boot. Unfortunately, those headlines will not 
be proclaiming the brilliance of our new show, but will rather be spreading the word on an incident which our world gossip has inflated by this ungodly hour of the morning into a full-blown suicide attempt on your part, an attempt to cut your wrists no less with, of all vulgar accoutrements, a shard of broken wine glass. And well, no doubt, some of our wittier commentators will be heard to proclaim, why, why, if the new show makes the artist herself want to cut her wrists, what is a poor, humble art critic to make of it? Well done, Madeline. That's three years' worth of work and twenty years' worth of reputation down the drain. A drain deeper, danker by far than the river outside that wretched window. Many thanks, dear sister. I could never have done it without you. Well, Roderick said Madeline, is it so wrong, so so terrible? Maybe it's a good thing. No, no, wait, Lord Roderick. Listen, listen to me, listen. Why did we come back here to Glasgow? I thought the idea was to, to turn off that conveyor belt we had rattling away in London, churning out umpteen stale repetitions of work that was never much good in the first place. To turn it off and come back here to Glasgow where we began and here to try and reconnect with the things that made us want to be artists in the first place. So we bought this place and, yes, set it all up, state of the art. And what did we do then? Installed the same old bloody conveyor belt, trundling out all the same old cheap stunts and self-plagiarisms as filled that gallery tonight. Well, maybe, Roderick, this is the push, the prompt we finally need to, to switch that conveyor belt off and finally have that serious conversation we've been putting off for so long. That conversation about what we, what we truly want to do as artists, whether, whether together or, or apart. Oh, yes, of course, said Roderick. That so long dreaded conversation. Well, 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 let's have it then. In fact, let's have it here and now. For certainly I don't feel like going to sleep, not just at the moment. But darling sister, if we're to have that so serious conversation, can I make just one teensy-weensy request? That it be a, a private conversation. What I mean is, uh, without your little... Uh, Groupie, eavesdropping. That was withering enough. What was worse still was when Madeline turned to me, as if barely remembering I was there, and said, What? Oh, uh, oh yes, um, would you mind, uh, um, uh, Ed, uh, would you mind leaving us? Would you? What could I do after that but shrink my way out of the bedsheets, shrink my way back into my clothes, steering my way back down the iron spirals of the staircase and across the studio floor, drawing open the door and stumbling out into the night. But I did not go far. Simply wandered to where the 
railing at the edge of the quay overlooked the dark waters of the river, the building from which I had crept immediately at my back. I stood there a, a long, long while, waiting, waiting for the cry that would, would, would inevitably come, the, the cry from Madeline, imploring me to, to hurry back inside and rescue her at last, at last, after all these years from her wretched brother. But that cry did not come. Yet still I stood there, and as I stood there, I became aware of a, of a pale shape shifting about in the water immediately below me. At first I thought it was just some rag of white polythene floating in the water. And then I supposed it might be one of the, the blind white eels urban folklore says breed in the dark waters of the Clyde. But as it seemed to rise closer towards me through the silty water, it came to more closely resemble a, a human figure swimming up towards me. <laughs> what was it? Some, some, some Clydeside mermaid? No. No. It was Madeline. Madeline swimming up towards me from the water's depths, her nightgown and pale skin so white against the water's dark. And I stood there thinking stupidly, but what's she doing down there? And then I realised it wasn't Madeline, not, not precisely. It was Madeline's reflection. Yes, her reflection upon the face of the water. The real Madeline at that moment. Up there, high above me, I looked up. There she was, falling from that illuminated upper window of the building. White body briefly swimming the black sky, arcing above my head before dropping, dropping dropping towards the black waters below, her reflection rising further to meet her, woman and reflection coming closer, closer, closer to one another, closer, 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 until, until they met with a sharp white splash and an audible gasp from Madeline in the second before she sank below the water's surface. In the next instant, I was uh, clambering the iron rail, drawing as much <gasps> breath into my lungs as I could, before diving after her into the water. The freezing water. The dark water, dense with silt. I plunged into its depths, swimming hard as I could, deep as I dared, searching for her in the murk. At first I saw nothing but the, the swirl of the watery void. But then, yes, just ahead, just ahead, yes, a, a glimpse of her pale shape sinking. I drove myself through the water towards her. Yes, there she was, turning her drowning eyes towards me, helpless in the water's grip. I, I, 
I reached her, fastened my own grip about her, began swimming us both up towards the surface, feeling her own arms wrap themselves around me. Yes, 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 I would save her, show her how heroically I loved her, win her away from her brother forevermore. But even as, with one arm fixed around her, my, my other hand cleaved the water above us, I felt the nails of her fingers begin to sink themselves into me. Felt her trying to 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 drag me down, even as I tried to to drag us both back up towards the surface. I was trying to save her, but she. It felt like she was trying to to drown me along with her. I looked sharply downward. Her, her pale face floating below me seemed set into a mask. A mask for some deathly ritual she was catching me up in. No, no, we had to go up, up, up the surface. But she was clutching me tighter, pulling me down, down, down. Air in my lungs, thinning, straining to breathe. To, to, I couldn't. Couldn't breathe. Still, she pulled me down, down into the dark. No, no air. No, had to, had to get free. Heaven, help me. Had to, had to. I, I began, began pushing, pushing, pushing at her, pushing her off, pushing her away, pushing her down, down. Still she clawed at me. Still she tried to tug me with her. Was that a smile on that white face of hers? Both my hands now pushing, pushing, pushing her away. Still she fought after me. I resumed swimming upwards. She caught at my legs. No hair, no hair, no hair. I, 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 I kicked at her. Kicked her hard. Kicked her off. Oh, oh, no air, no air. Now she was floating beneath me, that smile of hers still shining through the mark. I, I swam, swam hard as I could, swam for the surface, for the... Ah, 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 broke the surface, looked around, help, needed help. There, the quayside figure, figure standing there, dark figure. Roderick, help! Help! Roderick! Help! Help me! Malin! She! She! She's drowning! We! We! We have to! Have to! To! To save her! We! We! Roderick! Help me! Roderick! But he turned and walked away, leaving me to the grasp of the water's icy current. It dragged me out into mid-river and then dragged me down, back down, into the watery dark. And for the longest time, that darkness was the whole of my universe. But that's not the end, folks. Oh, no, no. A contemporary version of Edgar Allan Poe's most famous story 
will have to get more scary and dramatic than that. Join us here next time for the frankly frightening climax of falling for the ushers.